0: You know, we can go in the honor boardroom and you can read the honor code on the wall or see it out on the terrazzo, but that's just a minimum standard. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's that's something that when you leave the Air Force Academy and we put gold bars on you and you're going to go off, I have to know that that is baked into you. I need to know that that is just part of who you are.
1: welcome to the Players Hall podcast. My name is C1C Maya Mandiam, here with my co-host C1C Josh Wodrick and our special guest with us today, Colonel Kurt Went, intelligence officer and current director of the CCLD at the United States Air Force Academy. Welcome to the show, sir.
0: Thank you, thanks for having me.
1: To start us out, can you give us a quick elevator pitch of how you got here today?
0: Yeah, so I am a 1994 graduate of the Air Force Academy and went to grad school at the University of Maryland after that. And then, as you mentioned, career intelligence officer, uh, had a lot of opportunities to be overseas, both uh, living in Europe and deploying, and then ultimately kind of culminated as the USAFE 2 so head of Air Force Intelligence in Europe and Africa, which was a great job. And from there, I went to be a wing commander in the UK, uh, and that was eight bases across the UK and Norway, which was you know a really a great job, too before I came here to be the director of the Center for Character and Leadership Development. So, kind of back to where I started here at the Air Force Academy.
1: Awesome, sir. So, those last two assignments, I can't even imagine the scope of what you were doing. Can
0: you talk more about that? Yeah, sure. So, uh, being the head of intelligence for, for Europe and Africa, I think it's something, I understand what you're saying, because I remember being a young captain and I was deployed, it was Operation Allied Force, so we were we were doing an air campaign over Serbia and Kosovo and I actually sat in on a meeting with the USAFE A2 and I remember somebody asking him about like moving a U-2 and changing collection and I just thought, oh my gosh, how does he know how to, like I don't even know how that happens and then i thought about it you know 20 years later i'm actually in that job and i'm like oh yeah actually that is that's that's a pretty easy thing to do uh, <laughs> uh, but it's it's because you learn you know your career will build as a second lieutenant when you graduate from the academy we're not going to ask you to do super complex things uh, at a you know big strategic level necessarily we're going to teach you to be a specialist in your career field, and then you'll build from there. So, yes, large scope of responsibility, but I would say the twenty now twenty nine years of my career has prepared me for those types of roles, uh, whereas you know when I was a young lieutenant captain, I couldn't have imagined that.
1: Do you think the academy specifically prepared you well for the Air Force?
0: Yeah, absolutely.. Uh, Number one, you get a world-class education here, which I don't. I don't know that I appreciated that as much when I was a cadet. Uh, for me, the probably the defining moment of how great my academy education was. The uh, summer before my first year, I got to go to Georgetown University for a summer institute. It was like my summer research at the time, and. There were just a handful of us there from the Air Force Academy and students from all over the country. Every school you can imagine. And it made me realize, like, we're really, really well prepared for, for this. You know, much more so than some of our counterparts from other universities were. And that really motivated me to want to go to grad school. And so that, when I came back for my first year then from, from that summer program at Georgetown that's when I really started pushing it up to say, I want, I want to go to get a master's degree. You know, if I can get into a program, uh, ended up going to the university of Maryland. And again, uh, the, the handful of us that were there from the air force Academy, I think we did, we did really well in the program because we were really well prepared for that program. Whereas some of the students from other universities, again, um, Some of them really struggled. Grad school was really hard for them. For us, I think we felt like, wow, we have time. I can actually do all the reading and I can prepare for class. I can can work out and go for a run every day. And I still have time to actually collect my thoughts. So I realized that the academy academically prepared me really well. And then the other aspect, kind of more to your point about my career, the academy also taught me... Time management, uh, incredible time management. Because you know, you're cadets. You, we give you 127 things to do every single day, and you have to have really good time management to to succeed. That applies in life and as an Air Force officer in ways that I don't think I ever recognized as a cadet. But but as you get into your career, you go, wow, actually that I'm, you know, I'm really on top of things, and I think too broad education, you have so many different things, you learn to be flexible here at the academy. Uh, You, you know, you learn to do unfamiliar tasks all the time, and that's going to serve you well as officers as well. Absolutely. Um, So in your career, when you're talking about just the
2: amount of things that you've done and learned, what do you think is is the, or I guess maybe not the right mindset, but what do you think was a, a, a mindset going into it that was really beneficial for you?
0: I think uh, number one, the just being flexible, being innovative. It, we're gonna we're gonna throw things at you in the Air Force that you're not trained for. Uh, especially, I, I think about deploying and going to do combat operations. We're gonna put you in positions and things are gonna happen at the you know speed of combat that you're gonna have to adapt to. And you know it, it it's a no fail uh, kind of objective at that point. So the, the big idea of, yes, we're going to give you a great education, we're going to give you great training, we're going to teach you to do something, you know, in my case as an intelligence officer, uh, and then you're going to need to go and apply that. And there isn't a checklist for how to do everything you're going to need to do in the Air Force. So it's really that I need to be flexible, I need to be innovative, uh, and I need to you know, I need to work really hard. Um, The best way to be successful in the Air Force as an officer or anyone is to work hard. Uh, If you work hard, you apply yourself, give 110%, you're going to be successful. You're not going to succeed every time. Trust me, you're gonna fail at things, things are gonna go wrong. But overall, you're going to be successful in the Air Force or the Space Force if you are willing to work hard and apply that flexible mindset that I think you're learning here at the Academy.
2: So actually, going off of that, is there a time where you failed and you, what do you think was a time where you failed and you learned a lot from it? Oh,
0: gosh. I look back at my time like as a lieutenant and as a young captain, and I was not good at giving feedback. I you know, I can look at, you know, I think of one specific incident that I'm sure there were many, but uh, one in particular, um, I was a flight commander for the first time, uh, I've got a small team of, uh, of intel professionals, and one of our airmen is not meeting expectations. Uh, and when it came time to do the evaluation, to do the EPR for this airman, I struggled because... I didn't want to give negative feedback. I didn't want to tell this airman, you know, you're failing to meet expectations. And so I didn't. Mm -hmm. And honestly, uh, a couple things happened. Number one, this airman did not get better because I wasn't giving feedback. I wasn't telling this airman how to get better. And number two, it tore our flight apart because everyone knew that this person was not applying the way everyone else was. And so for that person to get just as good an evaluation as everybody else, Mm. it was near catastrophic. I mean, I don't think I ruined anybody's life or career necessarily, but that was a painful yet important lesson for me. Uh, I definitely failed as a leader to give feedback and, you know, saw some pretty significant uh, consequences of the whole fabric of our flight tearing apart for a little bit. And then, you know, I would say though, Good lesson. Uh, I had to figure out how to put it all back together because it's not like it's not like we could just stop doing uh, our mission at that time. So uh, I it's something I've gotten a lot better at, and I'm a big believer in. And you know, I, I, I tell young leaders too, like you need to be able to give feedback. You don't have to be an ogre about it, but be honest. Don't just tell them what's what they're doing wrong. Tell them how to fix it. And I think you'll find then about a 95% success rate among your airmen and guardians of, hey, if you tell them that they're not meeting expectation, you tell them how to fix it, they're going to fix it. They're going to do well. They're going to succeed, and it's going to make your whole team better.
1: Hmm. So, sir, you spent a lot of time overseas. So what, first of all, like, where was your favorite place you've been? But also, like, what did you learn from spending so much time in other cultures? Yeah
0: so i i gosh you're putting me on the spot to try and pick a favorite uh i've had the i would say the great fortune my family and i have lived overseas we've had five assignments in europe Uh, one in iceland when nas keflavik was still open unfortunately it's not anymore uh twice in england and twice in germany uh and i would say gosh I could tell you why any of those five were my favorite location and favorite assignment. I just, I loved spending time in Europe. It was great for my family. Our kids were, you know, some born and raised there uh, and really grew up in that culture. The thing that I love so much about living in Europe, um, others would say the same thing about the Far East and, and elsewhere, it's immersing yourself in another culture you you learn so much about, you know, we don't necessarily do everything the same as Americans here in the U.S. as they do in Germany or England or Japan or Korea or pick a place. And to, to learn that other people have different cultures and and that's, that's not something to be, like, you know, irritated about, like, I can't believe it's not the same as in America. No, it's awesome that people do things different ways you know try different foods travel to new places Uh, you can't help but learn to really broaden your mind and your horizons and understand people better by immersing yourself in their culture and i think that was you know one of my favorite things you know there's just something cool about when you live in germany and uh You you know, at Ramstein, we were 45 minutes from the border of France. So, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, we could be like, hey, let's drive to France and get baguettes and cheese for dinner tonight and just (laughs) pop back to to Germany. Um, Those were great experiences. And so I tell every cadet, every young officer I get an opportunity to never pass up an opportunity to be stationed overseas when, when you get that chance. But, but approach it when you do get those overseas assignments or even travels or whatever. Make sure you approach it with an open mind of, hey, I wanna, I wanna learn about other cultures and I wanna learn about other people and I wanna understand their history because it's gonna make you a better officer and a better person. Absolutely. So,
2: so I guess with, yeah, with your assignments, um, what do you think was something that you, what was something that you really appreciated? that was just like,
0: like being able to, in your career, in your specific career field. Uh, something that I appreciated. I, I loved uh, living in the UK. Uh, I, I had two assignments there. And uh, the first one, I was an exchange officer in the Royal Air Force as a captain. Mm-hmm. So I was the only American in a British squadron on a British base. Um, and again, that talk about immersing yourself in culture, like, you think we speak the same language, but there there were a lot of things when I got into my squadron, I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. Uh, Queen's English versus American English. So I, I really appreciated that opportunity to surround myself with that culture. And then fast forward, I had the great fortune to be a wing commander where I was based back in the UK. And so... Uh, lots of expectations in the UK, especially as a wing commander, to interact with the host nation. And so in our case, uh, I, was, uh, I was at RAF Alconbury, which is in Cambridgeshire. So uh, we got to have tea with the mayor of Cambridge. And my welcome lunch was at Cambridge University uh, mm. at the Hawks Club, their athletic club. Um, you know, the Lord Lieutenant of all the different counties where we had bases just amazing opportunities. Uh, I got to have dinner in the Houses of Parliament uh, in London uh, for for an event with the Royal Air Force. Those were the things that made me really, really appreciate the opportunities that the Air Force gave me. And you know, you're going to have you're going to have plenty of challenges along the way. You know, for every great thing I got to do in the Air Force, I could probably tell you about some not so great things I did too, and deployments and you know, less great places in the world. But my experience was you, know, you overcome those challenges and it makes those successes and those, those fun things that much better when you get those opportunities.
1: Hmm. Sir, so speaking of challenges, can you tell us about a time your integrity was tested?
0: Uh, yeah, so I think my message would be your integrity is on display every day. Uh, especially as a young officer, everyone is watching the lieutenant or the captain to see what right looks like. And so you need to have a mindset as a young officer that, hey, I I need to model uh, what right looks like for for my airmen, for my guardians. And a lot of that is your integrity being on display. Uh, As a squadron commander, uh, I remember distinctly my wing commander, kind of his guidance to all of us, all the new squadron commanders, was you can make mistakes, you can fail forward, you can, you know, things don't have to go perfect in your squadron, and they're not going to. You're going to have challenges and things that don't go right, and that's okay. But he said, if you ever compromise your integrity, if, if I ever get to a place where I can't trust you as a commander then you will be done. I, I will relieve you. Uh, and that really stuck with me. Uh, and then, you know, fast forward, I, I said the same thing. When I was a wing commander, I said the same thing to my group and squadron commanders. You know, you can make mistakes and things can go wrong, but don't ever lie to me about them. Don't ever compromise your integrity because once I lose trust in you, you can't command anymore. So, so I would say... It wasn't necessarily, you know, one incident where I really struggled with it. But I think about my time as a squadron commander, especially in the Air Force, where I go, I know how important integrity is. I know it because I was kind of brought up that way in the Air Force. I mean, I graduated from the Air Force Academy, and we had the honor code, uh, as we always have. But it was really that message from my wing commander that really stuck with me to say, yeah, I get it. Uh, if you can't trust me, it's pretty tough for me to be a leader uh, in the military. So that you know, that's my message to cadets: is mm-hmm. you know, we can go in the honor boardroom and you can read the honor code on the wall or see it out on the terrazzo, but that's just a minimum standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That's that's something that when you leave the Air Force Academy and we put gold bars on you and you're going to go off, I have to know that that is baked into you. I need to know that that is just part of who you are. Because we're going to trust you with multi-million dollar aircraft or or spacecraft. We're going to entrust you with nuclear weapons and top secret code word clearances. Most importantly, we're going to entrust you with our airmen and guardians. And we have to know that integrity is just who you are. And, And if you can't do the small things like not lying, cheating, and stealing at the Air Force Academy, there's no way I'm going to trust you to do the big things when when it really matters.
1: Sir, so is that kind of part of the reason why you wanted to come back as director of the
0: CCL? Yeah, for sure it is. I, I, I guess, you know, I always wanted to come back to the Academy, and some <laughs> cadets won't understand that. Uh, <laughs> I know I had, I had plenty of classmates who were like, put it in the rearview mirror. I always wanted to come back, and it just never worked out in my career. Um, being an intelligence officer, especially like as a captain and major was kind of for me was the height of both Iraq and Afghanistan. And there's just, we were deploying so much that coming back here just didn't work. So for me to have a chance to come back and actually influence cadets, because, you know, especially after 29 plus years in the Air Force, uh, I I want to, to make you guys better than I was coming out in the Air Force. And I think we do that. I, I, I look at the I look at the programs and the things we do across the Air Force Academy, and I go, "Wow, this is this is amazing. Uh, we're doing it better than when I was a cadet, and that is so encouraging for me." When I when, when we have visitors, uh, you know what I do with our with visitors on any given weekday? I take them to Mitchell Hall, uh, and we watch all four thousand cadets come in to eat lunch together, because because that's what gives me hope for the Air Force and the Space Force and for our nation going forward because that's 4,000 cadets who all had other great choices. Uh, I mean, the Air Force Academy is not the only school you got into, if I'm betting. And there there are those who say no thanks to Harvard and Stanford and pick another great university to come here and put up their hand and serve. And so that's what makes me go... I know our nation is in good hands going forward, because you guys, the cadets today, are better than when I was a cadet at the Air Force Academy, I promise you. I'm glad I'm not trying to get in now, because I don't know if I'd make the cut anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: Sir, what was your, say in your career, what was your hardest assignment, or the hardest thing you you went through? Ah,
0: yeah. I guess you could look at this a couple different ways. I mean, my... Hardest assignment potentially would be when I was at headquarters U.S. Central Command uh, down in Tampa at McDill Air Force Base 2008 to 2012. Again, this is the height of both Iraq and Afghanistan combat operations every single day. Um, so long hours, always something, you know, it was always high stress and there was always something going on. And uh, ultimately, I got to be the executive officer to the J2, to the director of intelligence. So I worked for two different army generals, uh, two of the finest military leaders you'll ever meet. Um, one of them, General Ashley, he's retired now, but he uh, ultimately was the director of DIA. And then uh, General Barrier, who's the current director of DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency. They were awesome. I learned so much from both of them. I Just extremely rewarding. But it was also, you know, some of those days, that was 5 a.m. to 9 p.m., plus weekends, plus travel. It it was a lot. But hardest job also, I would say, was one of the most rewarding jobs that I had. There was never a day you came to work at CENTCOM headquarters and going, I wonder if what I'm going to do today is important, Um, because it was important every day. Um, At that time, uh, General Petraeus was the commander, and then General Mattis, actually, Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember General Mattis telling us one day, he's like, if you look at the, the Secretary of Defense's top 10 priorities on any given day, seven or eight of them are in CENTCOM. And so between Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, Yemen, Pakistan, you name it, uh, there was always something going on. It was, it was always fast paced. It was a lot of hours. But it was extremely rewarding there was never a day where i you know wondered if my job was you know worthwhile or important or if i was doing something that you know that our nation needed so it was it's kind of i would say it's kind of both hardest and most rewarding potentially
2: so sir in that in that experience and just in general what is what keeps you going when you're just trying to press on when things get difficult
0: I think, uh, number one, a sense of accomplishment. A sense of, like, I know what I'm doing is important. Um, I, I was uh, I was deployed to Afghanistan. I spent uh, about six and a half, almost seven months in Afghanistan. And I was sent there to essentially create a task force to find and recover an army soldier that had disappeared. And... I, you know, I went about this, and you start with nothing. It was like, it, it was like, hey, hey, this happened, so you go and, you know, see what you can do. Go, go, do your best, and uh, that was, it was tough, but at the same time, you know, as we're working through trying to locate where the soldier is, uh, which, and you know, pretty quickly we we realized or we knew that. He had been captured by by the Taliban. He had been taken across into Pakistan, and he was essentially being held there by the the Haqqani network, a terrorist organization. And so, there were there were days when you're just like, man, I've, I don't feel like we're making any progress. Like, you, how how do we pinpoint him to a point where you know, like, special operations could actually go and recover him? So there were days where. You know, you worked and worked and worked, and you just didn't feel like you were getting anywhere. But once a month, we would do a teleconference, uh, a video teleconference with his family. And, man, when you talk to the parents and the sister of someone who, you know, I am the person in charge of finding and bringing home their son... Uh, that every time like i was i was ready to go good for another month of going and getting after it because because you knew how much it meant to them even on the little screen from a tent in afghanistan you, you knew what it meant to them so i i think you you have to find your why uh, but for me it was it was always something in my career field especially in intelligence where I knew what I was doing was making a difference. Even some days when it felt like a slog or you just, you wonder if you're making any progress when you take a step back and look at the big picture, you go, yeah, actually I'm making a difference. And, and it's important that I, you know, maybe, maybe I need to be the one to motivate my team to, to keep getting after it too. So uh, it, it's a matter of finding that, what am I doing that's important that I need to keep getting after because the Air Force or the Space Force or our nation needs it.
1: Mm-hmm. Sir, can you talk about, you mentioned some people that you really looked up to as leaders, like General Ashley and General Barrier. Mm-hmm. So can you just talk about some of the, the qualities and traits they
0: had? Yeah, I'll I'll talk about those two, two of the greatest leaders, and then I will also say my last two bosses uh, in Europe, General Walters, who's the Safety commander, and then went on to be the Sakhir, and General Harigian, who was the safety commander um, when I was a wing commander. The, the best common trait, I would say, across all four of those was humility. Uh, I mean, these are three- and four-star generals. Like, they, they know what they're doing. They've got a ton of experience. But none of those leaders ever came across like, hey, I have all the answers. I've been doing this the longest. I know I know. they always, always looked to the team for, hey, wh- how are we going to do this? How are we going to get after it? And I learned so much from that. I found, as a wing commander, sort of taking that humility and taking that willingness to engage, as a wing commander, you know, when, when you go into a squadron or, you know, whatever, a new section, whatever they're, problem or task is that's, you know, like the impossible problem or the really hard task. I always found the best people to ask about, hey, uh, how how are we going to do this, were the young airmen and the young lieutenants, because they're the ones closest to the problem. Who who knows better how to do something or a better way to do something than the people who are actually doing it on a day-to-day basis? So... Sometimes you have to put trust in those, you know, least experienced people. Um, but, but I found it like the humility of like, hey, I might be the wing commander, but I do not have all the answers. Yeah. Um, something that helped me with that too, I would say, I'm an intelligence officer but I didn't command an intelligence or an ISR wing. Mine was a combat support wing. So there were a lot of tasks. There were a lot of things that we did that I had no earthly idea or experience. Uh, you know, we have five fire departments across our bases. I know next to nothing about how to operate a fire department. So so what do you do? You go immerse yourself. Uh, you know, I went to the fire department, we went to Alkenbury and they dressed me up in bunker gear. And then we went inside the trainer and literally sat down in the middle of a fire. And, uh, you know, I learned a ton about that. But you have to be humble enough to go, I don't know anything about this. In fact, you know, in that case, I'm going to kind of put my life in your hands, uh, you know, to the fire chief and the firefighters who are there taking me through this exercise. Because you know what you're doing. I do not. Uh, So I think the biggest skill, though, that I learned was humility from them. And then the other one that I think it's always been a part of me, but take care of your people. The best leaders I knew were always good about taking care of our people, and that's something that, as a, certainly as a squadron commander and as a wing commander, that that we applied. Um, not you know not necessarily the three or four star, but um, for Christina, my wife and I, the best example that we always looked up to was. Our squadron commander and his spouse in Iceland, uh, Mako Peterson and his wife Jackie. Uh, they, he's a fighter pilot. He's an F-15 pilot, uh, and I'd never met anyone who took care of every member of the squadron as well as he and Jackie did. And so that was something that Christina and I always wanted to emulate. I remember uh, the spouses' club, you know, that Jackie led. You know, they were meeting in our little apartment in Iceland. Christina was hosting, and, you know, I'm making food or whatever it is I'm doing to try and stay out of the way. And I remember Jackie Peterson, this is the squadron commander's wife, saying, hey, I just looked at the inbound roster. We have an airman basic coming straight out of basic training, and she has a family with three kids. So we are really going to need to you know, wrap our arms around them and help them. And and she started saying, you know, hey, let's, they have like a baby. So how about, you know, she's asking some of the other spouses, hey, can you go to the thrift store and see if we can find some like, you know, warm clothes for babies and for their kids. And we need to make sure their fridge is stocked when they get here. It just blew me away that I'm like, wow, this is the squadron commander's wife. And she genuinely cares so much about this, airman basic and her family coming in that you know the whole squadron is going to rally around them that was an incredible example that you know Christina and I tried to emulate to the best that we could after that that's amazing <laughs> it really was and uh, you know I, I i don't think it's something that we teach you though mm-hmm. i mean how how often in your academy education experience do we tell you hey make sure you're taking care of your people Mm -hmm. um i i don't i don't know we we expect you to do it but we're not necessarily great at teaching you and telling you about it Uh, i'll give you another example so when when i'm a squadron commander uh we were in germany not not iceland not quite as remote but we're in germany and we're an air force squadron on an army garrison so we're a little bit alone and unafraid uh, and we have young airmen coming in, some of them with families that are no kidding, living overseas, away from their friends and family for the first time. And we deployed our airmen all the time. And so uh, one of our airmen deployed to Afghanistan, and so i I'm talking to the flight commander and flight chief and uh, about about this family. I'm like, okay, Wife and kids are still here. They're in base housing. So uh, I, as a squadron commander, I'm going to call her once a month just to check in. Uh, and, but my expectation for you, flight commander, flight chief, and supervisor, whoever on your team, you need, you're going to do that at least once a week. And, uh, and I had a flight commander who kind of said, well, how's, how's that my job? And I, you know, I just about screwed myself into the ceiling. Uh, I'm like, what do you mean? How's that your job? Like, we have to take care of families. You know, just because the airman is deployed, we have, you know, wife and kids here that we are going to make sure we're helping out. Uh, But, you know, as I reflected on it, I'm like, well, how would this young flight commander actually know that? Uh, if, If he's never been in a squadron where that was a priority. So, you know, I... Absolutely had to give him a break on that, but taking care of airmen and families is, is something that Christina and I learned from Mako and Jackie Peterson, our squadron commander and spouse in, in Iceland.
1: That's awesome, sir.
0: Absolutely. Um,
2: sir, so what's something, something either you wish that you did while, like, throughout your career, your time as a cadet even, or you wish you didn't do?
0: Oh, something I wished I did. Mm. I, I, I think I look back now, especially and go, I wish I read more. Um, reading, like as a cadet, how often do you go? Yeah, I'm just going to sit down and pick up a good book and read for a little bit. I just didn't do it because because I was too busy. And if I was reading, it was something for a class. I uh, went to grad school, and then you know, kind of the same thing. Any reading I was doing, or most reading I was doing, was was for my classes. And, you know, you just, you become so busy over time that it's only been more recently that I'm really, like, I read a lot more. I'm, I'm always trying to, you know, pick up the next good book. And uh, so I, I find in this position too, like, I end up with a stack of good books and, you know, I have to really, uh, it takes me some time to, to get through them. But I learned so much from that. So I wish that when I was a Lieutenant captain as a younger officer, I wish I took more time to read, because I think it would have made me a better person, you know, a lot earlier. Maybe I wouldn't have made so many <laughs> dumb mistakes, uh, given feedback if I had uh, been a little more educated on, on what that meant.
1: What's your favorite book?:
0: Oh gosh, my favorite book, and I'm looking over here at my <laughs> bookshelf. I, I'm, I'm big into history. And so I think my favorite, some of my favorites are, uh, they call it the Liberation Trilogy from Rick Atkinson. Starts with An Army at Dawn, Day of Battle, and Guns at Last Light. And it's essentially the story of the liberation of Europe mm-hmm. from the Africa campaign to Italy, and then finally Normandy and, and the drive to, to Berlin. Uh, I love Rick Atkinson. He's one of my favorite authors. Um, and then I think, too i also really appreciate some of the leadership books um some of my favorites right now are probably uh, admiral mcraven's he's got you know make your bed obviously his famous Mm -hmm. speech it's a little it's like this little mini book that you can read in no time at all um and he's done a couple more and then he had a a larger book called sea stories uh with just some great experiences Um, when i was in afghanistan working with special operations Admiral McRaven was the commander and you know a couple times when I actually saw him like on the ops floor in action I was like wow you know this guy's been around Uh, what an amazing leader so I love that he's taken time to actually write down some of uh, some of his leadership advice and uh, and some of his experiences too. So that was a long answer to a short question. I can't pinpoint just one book. it's oh,
1: hard to <laughs> pick like a favorite one, <laughs> All right, sir, to end us off, we have some final questions. Mm. So, what's your favorite
0: base? My favorite base mm-hmm. was RAF Alkenbury. Okay. Got to be the wing commander there. It's a tiny base, um, so didn't have a lot of amenities, but the, the community was amazing. Uh, great experience.
1: Alright, favorite airframe?
0: My favorite airframe, probably the F-22. I grew up in the uh, F-15C Eagle world, the world's greatest fighter undefeated in combat. But when I was at Tyndall with both F-15Cs and F-22s, it made me realize just how amazing fifth generation uh, fighter technology is.
1: Could you end us off with a war story?
0: Oh gosh, so i'll give you uh will give you a war story about uh you know kind of on, on this theme of integrity and like no kidding an ethical dilemma um one that i like to share so when we're we're in afghanistan um and you know our, our job i'm an intelligence officer i do target development and we are we are doing bad things to bad people and so you spend days, weeks, months kind of developing, you know, looking for these high value targets like the Taliban leaders and Al Qaeda leadership, uh, at that time. And, uh, and you know, then there's that magic moment when you finally get the opportunity to like go get after one of them. Um, so, you know, I remember one in particular where, uh, we have, no kidding, a Taliban leader is in a vehicle with two or three other bad people. You know, it's, it's like, no kidding, a vehicle full of Taliban terrorists, and we're following them. Uh, I can't remember if it was a predator or a reaper, but we are following that vehicle. And we're just waiting for them to clear the city or village or wherever they're at as soon as they get out in the open, you know, there is a hellfire waiting, you know, with their name on it. And and it's it's that moment when you've been tracking them for so long and now you finally have this opportunity, but but we're not going to strike them in a populated area. We're, you know, that is how we do business in the US military. So we're not going to we're not going to fire while they're in the village or in the city. We're going to wait for them to clear Uh, and we have to keep eyes on them the whole time to ensure like no kidding this is a valid target and there aren't any women and children or anything in the car with them and we're doing this and at some point they went behind a building and we couldn't see them. and you know, probably for I don't know 15 or 20 seconds it felt like forever. And then finally, here comes that same vehicle out the other side. And we've got eyes on them again. But we don't know what happened behind that building. We don't know what happened in that time frame when we couldn't see them. Uh, Probably nothing. But what what if they stopped and swapped out passengers? What if there's women or children or innocents in the car now? We can't tell. And so... We had to essentially call knock it off. And even though that vehicle goes trucking out into the desert, where it would have been a perfect target, we don't hit it because we can't guarantee who's in that car, who's in that vehicle anymore. And so uh, that I remember, you know, it's just this gut wrenching feeling of like weeks or months worth of work that you are making a conscious decision to go. I can't do this, you know could we have would would anyone have ever well, maybe not, but but it wasn't the right thing to do. So it goes back to that issue of integrity. I have to know that you can make the right calls with the small things because because when it comes to a big thing like are we going to strike this vehicle or not? Uh, you, you have to have practiced, the, the ethical behaviors and making those right calls and doing the right thing before I can trust you to make those calls when it's no kidding, life or death. And so, you know, I would say one of many opportunities or times in combat zones in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever, uh, where, you know, you, you have to make those hard calls and, uh, and, and, and you need to do the right thing. Um, now, Many other opportunities, it worked out perfectly. And, you know, we did do bad things to bad people and take terrorists, uh, you know, off the battlefield so that they couldn't do bad things to us anymore. Uh, but, but you had to be ready to do the right thing at the right time.
1: All right, sir, any parting shots for the cadet wing?
0: I would just say, um, you know, thanks for what you do. Uh, I know what we put you through every single day. But, you know, uh, never lose sight of the fact that you are here at the Air Force Academy to become a leader of character. And that's what we need. That's what the Air Force and the Space Force needs. When we put gold bars on you, you walk across that stage, you are going to be ready to be leaders of character. So, uh, you know, never lose sight of that prize, of that graduation day, and more importantly, what you get to do after that. But uh, I, I know... It's never easy here at the Air Force Academy, but uh, I'll tell you, it's it's worthwhile. And uh, I know you're going to go do great things for us.
1: There we have it, Colonel Went. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs>
0: Thanks for having me. <laughs>